Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip talks about investing in the Coinbase Direct listing and answers your questions such as, do budgets really work? How much should I put towards savings, insurance, investing, debt elimination, etc.? Where's the best place to put my savings? What's the best method for eliminating debt? What insurance policies do I need? How much life insurance should I buy? How much do I need to save for retirement? What are the best retirement vehicles and strategies? And can I get a tax deduction when selling my business? Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now... Here's Philip. All right. Another episode, another week. It's April. This weather this year is crazy because it's like still cold and it's rain. I guess April is always rainy, but it's definitely like cold, which I, I actually kind of, I kind of like the fact that it's cold. I just don't like cold and rainy. I can take 60 degrees all day long. I just don't like the cold, but let's, let's get into the episode. So where, where are we going to start? I run a lot of different strategies for Stonehill Wealth Management. They're called managed accounts, accounts that we manage for clients. And there's some core, what we call like models. You could think of models like an investment strategy that we use to, be, to build the base of the account. And then we, you know, layer over client preferences on, on, on top of that. And so one of the strategies that I manage is called macro opportunities. It's the most aggressive model that we run. And in that model... This week, we bought Coinbase direct listing the day after. We bought some Square earlier and, and Tesla, right? So we're going to talk about the Coinbase direct listing because I had a few folks that asked about it. And so like, let's go into like, here's why I actually like it and why I bought it, which is, again, it's not an recommend, investment recommendation, but I'm just talking about it. So I thought Coinbase would direct list at a higher price after the first day. And when I say price, a lot of people... Um, might think of price as just the the price per share. So I'll hear some t- people say, "Oh, you know, Amazon's expensive because it's selling at whatever twenty five hundred bucks per share, or uh, Coinbase is expensive because it's four hundred bucks per share, or for example, Bitcoin. It's expensive because it's you know sixty thousand dollars you know per Bitcoin. And whenever you're making an investment, you want to make an investment." factoring in like you're like you're buying the whole business right or in the case of bitcoin like you're like you're investing into the whole into the entire asset class and so for example when you look at uh coinbase's market cap let me pull it up because i actually have it i have it right here as of yesterday i haven't checked today but coinbase's market cap at the end of the day yesterday which is around what it was you know at the, at the end of the first day was about 63 a billion dollars. And so you look at it and you say, okay, is the business worth $63 billion? And and you approach it that way versus saying, hey, is the business worth $400 per share? Because what does that even mean? Like you, you have to know how many shares there are and then look at the whole, you know, look at all the cash is thrown off and then do a cash flow valuation and then divide it by the number um, of shares. And so I just say, let's look at the whole business and let's figure out what the whole business is worth and then decide whether I want to buy a piece of the business uh, via the shares and then buy X amount of shares based on your risk tolerance, time frame, and investment strategy and, and confidence in the business moving forward. And so when I do my, when I do a discounted cash flow analysis, which is what us finance nerds do to figure out the value of a company, and, and it's, it's similar to if you're going to buy a private business or if you're going to invest in real estate, you, you got to decide, is it worth it to buy? So discount cash flow model is a way to decide how much a business uh, is worth. And so for me, $63 billion was a steal because here, and here's my criteria. I've went over it before on the podcast, right? So I talk about the fact that in this new age of investing, you have different rules, right? So you have, you want to have companies that have a low debt. Network is a new leverage, right? Network meaning a dominant place for buyers and sellers to meet. 
you need the company to be growing at a higher rate than the money printer per year. And the higher, the better. You want that network to be extremely difficult to replicate. And so Coinbase fit the criteria. Low debt, growing well, strong network. I mean, it's the strongest network for buying crypto in the Western world, in, in my opinion. And then the next closest competitor is not not even close. And then you look at the valuation. And so you say, okay, you know, what is the likelihood of how big a Coinbase can get as a, as a market cap? So it's worth, it's at $63 billion. Could it get to $630 billion? Could it get to a um, trillion dollars? And my estimation is, yeah, easily, easily, right? Because of everything that it does. So it's, you know, it's not only an exchange, right, for buying and selling. It also will eventually and has plans to get into crypto lending and everything else that traditional financial companies can do because it it owns the brand for cryptocurrency and it has the customers and it has a great user experience. And if you think about, let's look at other tech companies. So Facebook started out one way and as they got the customers, they were able to build out different things because they built a pretty good user experience, right? So Coinbase is running a similar playbook in the digital world for doing everything crypto. What what also impressed me is I, I thought before the IPO that, or not the direct listing, which is different than the IPO, but I thought the bulk of their business was retail. When they showed their numbers, something like half of their assets on the platform are by institutional players. And that's really important because w- when you go back to my thesis for Bitcoin and why I think it's likely going 100 times up from where it is right now, it's because the institutions that manage the money want in, and they have a whole lot more money than retail investors. And so if institutions are using Coinbase to custody assets for their clients, you know, that's a, that's a gold mine. As that, as that money comes over, Coinbase becomes one of the big toll booths that you have to go through to get money into that, uh, into that crypto world. That was a big reason I, I did the, you know, I, I did the valuation. It was relatively cheap for where I thought it can grow to. And, and out of all the stocks that I own, right, that I like, Coinbase has the cheapest valuation. And that was crazy. So we bought it. We also bought Square and Tesla, which those are like crazily valued. And so you might be thinking, oh, why would you buy a crazily valued business? Well, all the businesses out there are crazily valued. But if they meet the criteria and they're crazily valued, but they have a lot of upside, like in, in a world where the government's printing lots of money, you don't have many options uh, as a store of value because the, the question is, do I want to hold cash that's earning, that's earning nothing getting printed out? Or do I want to store my value in companies that are building networks, you know, for the, for the future, right? And so that's the choice that you have to make, the worst of two options. And so as long as the f- federal government uh, keeps rates super low, which they have to, because if they don't, then their interest they pay on their debt goes up a lot. The payments they have to pay for pensioners and Social Security participants goes up a lot, and that blows their finances up. So they don't really have an option but to keep rates low. And as long as rates are low, uh, that throws off the discounted cash flow rate, which keeps it low. And when you have a low discount cash flow rate, things like value stocks don't work. You know, growth stocks are, are what people like. And so, you know, I own the growth stocks that are have really strong networks, low debt, uh, growing at a high rate than the money printer hard to replicate. And here's something else that I think, specifically with the theme of of the portfolio, right? Because when you think about networks, like when I think about networks, I think about, hey, okay, if if I'm looking at a network and I am network as being the new leverage, like what are the biggest networks in the world? Money is the largest network, right? Money is the largest network. Like think about like the dollar and treasuries, which is the which is the money network are the largest asset class on the planet, government bonds and cash, largest asset class on the planet, and so the reason why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin and companies that are in that space is because like that's a really large network. So Bitcoin hits that thesis has a lot of upside because it's going to dominate that network. Then you got the toll booth Coinbase, right? Square is also going to be a toll booth, right? Company that I mentioned we bought PayPal, which we own too, is another toll booth because they're the on-ramp to crypto. Facebook, which is the strongest social network, and 
the only way that we can communicate with our high school folks, people that we don't keep in contact with uh, frequently. It's advertising business is super dominant, like Google's, but it also, you know, mark my words, they are going to become an on-ramp for cryptocurrency as well. They already telegraphed their intention with Libra, which changed to DM, which is being slowed down. But they're going to have crypto wallets, and, on, and they have uh, more than a billion people on the platform that they can on-ramp onto on the cryptocurrency as well. So they'll they'll play they'll play into the thesis of helping people get money into the into the digital world. But it also it's a social network and it's going to be part of the, the 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 money network. What also is interesting about Square and Tesla is they own they have Bitcoin on their balance sheet, which that may or not may or not be showing up in the evaluation. So when you you know when you buy a company that has Bitcoin on the balance sheet, you also get the optionality of when the Bitcoin goes up, it's like buying another growth business on their on their balance sheet. So you have you have that kind of optionality on the balance sheet as well. And so those are the rationale. That's why I bought those three companies, like those three companies. They're not the only three that we like, but I'm looking at the themes. Oh, let me go back to the other theme too. Tesla, I mentioned. So one big network is money. What's another big network? Energy, right? Money is number one. Energy is arguably number two. If not number one, I'm just I'm going to get based on gut feel, but energy and money are up there. And so you think, okay, we're moving into a world where if most people will say, yeah, 10 years from now, we're going to be using more renewable energies. Well, who has the strongest technology for storing energy, right? By the way, we already have a problem storing energy with fossil fuels. You know, one of the big things that people don't realize about energy is a lot of energy is wasted from when it's taken out of the ground to when it's actually used. There's a lot of energy wasted. And so storing energy is something that we've not historically done well as a as a species and we're going to be using techno we're going to be using alternative forms of energy in the future. Well, who who has the strongest technology on that? And nobody talks about Tesla. Like if you look up Tesla's energy storage business, they are one of the best, if not the best. So from a car company standpoint, all the other car companies are saying, we're going to do electric. But the thing is, if you're going to buy an electric car, you know, and one car can can do 400, I'm just making up some numbers. One can do three to 400 miles, every, you know, every time you got to recharge it. And one can do one to 200. Um, you're going to buy the one that, that's going to go further, right? Nobody's close to Tesla as far as being able to have the battery power to move forward. So they're either going to have to buy from Tesla you know, their technology to do it, uh, which adds more money in Tesla's pocket, or everybody's going to buy from Tesla, right? Or develop their own, which costs a crazy amount of money. And one thing that Elon Musk has been great at since Tesla was started was getting money from investors to invest in technologies. And he's done that for 12 years, right? So, so just like Amazon, like Jeff Bezos, the reason why Amazon became a beast, he had Wall Street's trust and they gave him money for, you know, multiple decades, right? Years and years, where he was burning through cash to build his moat, and that's really hard to do. Elon's been able to do it. So a company that's going to replicate it, they got to spend as much money to replicate the the moat, and that's going to be just super difficult, right? So Tesla has a huge lead, not only in the cars, right, which a lot less than 1% of people drive Tesla cars in the world, so it's going to be more. And the other companies that want to do it, they, they're going to need his tech. Secondarily, as everything becomes smart, our, our houses, right, and everything else is going to need to store energy and use those batteries, which hasn't even started, like Tesla's ahead there. And so there's an awareness of energy storage, especially from us Texans, from the crap that we had to deal with in February. Tesla's going to sit right in the middle um, of that for the Western world. So Tesla's a big network. It has the market for energy network. One of the other big networks is transportation. I haven't got to, but so Tesla sits on two of those big networks and it owns Bitcoin on the balance sheet. So going to the next network, transportation, I just explained that Tesla's part of the transportation network. And then the last big network, retail, which Amazon still owns that. By the way, we own Amazon, right? And Facebook is kind of playing in that game where you can buy stuff on Instagram, which I think is smart because if I'm looking at, if I'm following my favorite boxer or Muay Thai fighter or whoever, and they show me what gloves they can use, and I can just buy the gloves right there on Instagram. Like that makes it real easy to buy. And so, money, energy, retail, transportation—those are the big networks that 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 I like to look at because they drive a whole lot of stuff. And if you can, if you can just get one of those bets right in your portfolio over time, you can make a crazy amount of money because networks are the new leverage 
And so that's that's my overall market thoughts and why I bought the stocks that we bought, right? And for those of y'all listening, if you like me in the beginning adding just thoughts around different investments um, that I'm looking at, you know, hit me up on Twitter, ask underscore Philip. Let me know your thoughts on it. And or you can just put it in a review that you like that part of the podcast. It'll let me know to keep doing more of it. If you don't, I won't do any more of it. So, and if you're thinking, hey, somebody else is going to do it, I don't got to do it. Just, you know, if, if nobody does it, I'm not doing it again. So make sure y'all tweet at me or uh, give me a review on Apple Podcast. Let's get into the next part. So here's some questions that I got. And I'm actually, these are the same questions that I'm doing. I'm doing a, I'm doing a couple of different speaking engagements. I did one last week. I'm doing one for 100 the new chapter, 100 Black Women of Dallas coming up. These are questions from that from that deal that I'm going to be answering. I'm doing a talk to the Texas CPA Society, a whole bunch of CPAs in May. So these, these are some of those questions, too. I combined them. I'm going to answer as many as I can in the next 30, 40 minutes because I wanted the audience to, to, to hear the answer to these questions. So first question. Philip, do budgets really work? No, they don't. They don't really work for most people. Unless you're like a like a spreadsheet nerd, which is, which by the way, I do have a handful of clients that are like way more organized than me and they look at their spreadsheet and update it every single day, right? But if but th- there's like a rarity, I don't meet too many people who are, who are like that. So if you're like that, budgets work. If you're not like that, budgets typically don't work. And so what I like to use instead is systems because we only have so much willpower. Right? If, you, if you think about it, you know, you have to have willpower to be good at your job, then willpower to be a good husband, Willpower to, or you know, or get wife, or a good parent, right? A good friend. You need willpower. Willpower is doing the hard decisions, and you only have so much you can use up per day, right? You only got so much will energy before you need to refill, which is why taking care of your body, eating well is really good. Meditation's good. Sleeping well is good because it builds that will energy. But even with that, you only have so much will, and so when it gets to daily tracking your 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 budget and making sure that you didn't overspend your budget. That's super tough. So I like to use systems because it's like it doesn't require much energy. I can save my energy. And so what's a system? You know, a system is just the automated way to have your money go where it wants to go. And a simple system that I use is, you know, you break your fixed expenses up from your discretionary expenses and you have two completely separate accounts for those two different expenses. And, and, and what I like to do is deposit all your money into your fixed account because fixed account are going to be bills that if if you don't pay it, something shuts off or default. So that's like insurance, your mortgage, uh, car notes, student loans, but things that you have to pay. And nobody overpays on like those, right? So deposit check into that account. And then when you have your discretionary bills, you would have already written it out. So that's gas, you know, groceries, entertainment, things that can be adjusted. And so you have a set number on that too. And what you do is you just pay yourself like you would pay yourself a salary, what you pay yourself each month for discretionary expenses. And once those go on, those, those are gone. And, and, and so separating it out allows you, you know, A, when I have clients do it, they go, do we really spend that much on discretionary expenses? I'm like, yes, you do, right? So separating out is eye-opening. Eye and then what happens is, you know, when you get to a point to where your discretionary account is low, then you know, oh, okay, maybe instead of, eating at Papado's on date night this week, we're going to have to go like to Razoo's or we got to make our own fish, you know, or whatever we like, to, our own seafood at home. But it, 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 it takes away the checking that spreadsheet, you know, every single day. Because most of us are not going to like spend our account to zero. And so just seeing your account low, everybody has a comfort number to where you stop spending. And so this process allows you to, uh, do that. And then all you got to do is update it quarterly. So quarterly, review everything, make sure your expenses haven't changed. If they have changed, adjust your numbers in your accounts and then move on with your life, right? That may take 30 minutes on a Saturday morning once a quarter, which is like two hours a year. That's the answer to budgets. Question number two. Let me stop numbering because I'm sure going to forget what number I'm on. I didn't number these. Next question. How much should I put towards savings, insurance, investing, debt elimination, et cetera? One of the things whenever you go through the process of breaking up your your bills is I like to say your fixed expenses should be about 60% of what you take home, right? And if not, then you need to figure out a way to cut something, right? Call, you know, call up your cable provider, shut some stuff off, talk to your insurance professional, 
you know, figure out how you can save some money on insurance, but get that to about 60%. And and I would say discretionary, discretionary should be around 20%, which leaves about 20% towards saving, investing, debt elimination, basically building your balance sheet. And here's one caveat too. Some people, some, some people are going to find their fixed expenses are only 40%. So then that leaves... 60% left over after that, and you can decide, okay, cool, do I want to do 30 for discretionary, 30 for savings and investments, 20 for saving and investments, you know, you know, 40% for discretionary. That depends on, like, your financial plan. So you want to have a plan to figure out, you know, what track am I on? Am I happy with the track that I'm on? If I'm not happy, then you want to put some more of that money towards your financial plan and less towards discretionary. But that's going to be more fine-tuning based on your plan. But in general, I say 60% towards fixed, 20% towards, towards discretionary, 20% towards your plan. And then I like to just keep it simple. You go through and you say, all right, in my savings, how much do I want to keep in you know, my savings account right, for emergencies? You know, I'm a fan of two to three months of expenses in your savings account. It's not going to earn much. And cash is trash. But it, it it keeps you. It's like insurance, right? It you know you'll lose money after cost of living just after inflation every single year. But it's there and it's 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 safety money. So if you have the two or three months of of your paychecks in savings, then you don't you don't have to put any of the twenty percent towards that. You can check that off the box. And I actually skipped one. Let's go to insurance because insurance is going to be a line item that's going to be in your fixed bucket. And I kind of just ran straight through that, right? So. So when you're, when you're looking at your insurance, I like to talk to my insurance agent. If you don't know anything about insurance, I like to say, hey, when you look at my coverages, what's the minimum coverage I need to have to be like just responsible? What's the regular amount that I should have? And then what's super protection? And have them give you three scenarios, right? And so that way, when you're deciding on if you need to cut some of your fixed expenses to fit the insurance in there, you know what you need to do, but the the insurance money comes out of that sixty percent in the fixed bucket. You want to keep it within that. It's not going to come from your twenty percent that's going towards saving, investing, and paying off and paying off debt. So going back to twenty percent for saving, investing, paying off debt. So if if you have savings done, then you're like, cool. Do I do I still have debt that I want to pay off? If so, and you still need to invest, then just split it fifty fifty, right? And just keep it super easy. If you have all three, if you need to build savings, need to invest, and you pay off debt, just do a third, third, and third, right? Is there math behind it? No, but it just makes it super easy. I like to like reduce willpower. Just automate it and have it go do what it's going to do. Now, here's one exception. There's always exceptions. If you have a lot of high-interest credit card debt, like a lot of it, I recommend like just put everything towards that and then start dividing it up. But pay off that high-interest stuff first because... If that stuff is like 18, 19, 20%, like eliminating that is a bit come up for your balance sheet. So that's how you determine how much you should put towards all those different things. Next question. Philip, where's the best place to put my savings? <laughs> In a savings account. Look, savings account don't pay, they don't pay much at all. And that's why I call it insurance. Now, what I will tell you, this is something that a lot of 20-year-olds, millennials, people who are comfortable with internet money, are doing is they're converting some of their savings to like stable coins. And let me explain what stable coins are. Stable coins are basically like a digital dollar. So it's it's separate from Bitcoin or Ethereum that fluctuates. A stable coin is going to hold its value at, at a dollar for a dollar. So for example, you're always able to redeem it for a dollar. That's mirroring the dollar should be. Now, and what happens behind the scenes is Let's say USD coin is is like a coin that Coinbase and other person put together for as a stable coin, and so what's what's assumed is they'll take a million dollars, for example, put it in a bank, and they'll have that million back, a million dollars worth of stable coin, right? Now some will have it backed by dollars, some will have it backed by other assets, some you know s- you know some potentially might say, hey, maybe we have a billion dollars of Bitcoin. Uh, that backs it, and a billion of dollars that backs it, but we're only going to have from that two billion. We're only going to maybe, you know, we're only going to maybe have a billion five that we allow to be in stable coins, right? Fifty percent of the Bitcoin, you know, and all the dollars we have backing it. I'm just giving some numbers, but the point is, it's it's backed by assets so that they can hold its 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 
its value at a dollar. So it doesn't it doesn't fluctuate. Your risk is can the counterparty will they be able to exchange if you want to exchange back for dollars, real dollars, can you do that if they have the money to back it? And so that that is your risk. But when you convert it to a stable coin, there are stable coins that are paying, you know, four, five, six, eight percent interest on the stable coin. So you convert your savings to a stable coin and then you go put it up at whatever, BlockFi, Gemini, some other, you know, um, some other company, Coinbase that will pay you interest on your stable coin because they, they lend the stable coins out to people who are doing crypto trading and they collect interest. They keep some and give you some for your, for your stable coin. It's a whole industry being built, right? And it's cool because in the real world, rates are being suppressed by central banks. Like the, the interest rates that we're paying now are like phony. They're manipulated versus the crypto space, which is a free market, right? The, the market is dictating the interest rate, which is how it should be. And so you're getting paid a lot more money on it. And so some people might say, well, Philip, that's risky because, you know, what if the company doesn't, you know, have the money to back it? I'm like, yeah, it is risky, but, you know, and it doesn't have FDIC insurance. But if you look at the other side and you say, well, I got a savings account with XYZ Bank, most people don't realize those banks don't, like for every dollar you have in the bank, you know, they've leveraged that dollar up 10, 20 times, right? So so meaning if, if you got a million in the bank, they don't have it back dollar for dollar, right? They they may you know they may only have it backed by a hundred thousand, hundred thousand dollars for your million. So it's super risky. To, and the FDIC insurance, when you look at it, wouldn't cover all the money in the system. If something were to happen, and so now they can print money, which is what they do. The reason why it's quote unquote safer is because the government can print more money. But then that makes the value of your money worth a whole lot less, which goes back to my previous episodes about inflation and them stealing your money, right? Even though you may have the million, if it can only buy half of what you need to buy a year from now, you like lost 50% of your purchasing power, which is more important than keeping the million. And so purchasing power is super important. So there's no safe thing out there to put your money, period. You got different risks wherever you want to go. I'm just explaining to you the reason why these folks that are into crypto who understand finance, they're like, well, cool, there's risk on this side. Oh, and by the way, like for sure, the dollar is going to depreciate every single year like it's done for the last hundred years. So I know that for sure, and I can estimate that, you know, the the past inflation rate has been, you know, 4% a year, which here's here's a crazy thing. If you look at, so I like to use, I don't like to use the government's inflation number. Because it's it's wrong too. They use a, some 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 BS number, so they can keep it low, so they can keep the rates low. Blah 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 blah. I like to use housing prices because inflation is based on is based on like where you live and what your income is. It's different for everybody. We don't always buy the same amount of things. Housing is a really good metric for me to figure out what what inflation is roughly. And so if you look at the 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 inflation rate based on that from 1980 to now. That inflation rate has been about 4.3% per year, which means you lost about 4.33% purchasing power every single year. What does that actually mean? That means if you had a million dollars in 1980, it's worth in purchasing power today about $170,000. So you lost like $830,000 of purchasing power that the government stole you from you through manipulation of interest rates because you get paid less on your million, right? And the cost of things have 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 gone up. And so, you know, you feel good because, oh, I got a million, but in your gut, you know something is wrong with that. Everybody knows. They're like, man, I'm, I'm not getting paid anything. I can't communicate why, right? This is the math behind it. You got, they stole 80% of your, of your, of your purchasing power. And so like, and by the way, that's going to get worse because the printer, the printer was slow over the last 40 years compared to what it's going to be over the next five, 10 years, right? Because the debt's bigger and things are more volatile, and so like it's gonna get worse, in my opinion. And so then you say, okay, so it's bad over here. Okay, what are the risks over here again? Oh, okay, well, it's 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 backed by more money than the bank, and what will happen is the 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 free market is gonna reward those companies that are like. So when you're looking at your stablecoin rates, maybe you don't go with the company that pays the most interest rate because you know they're taking the most risk. Right, maybe you take a stablecoin interest rate that's paying you maybe less money from a company that maybe is being more transparent, and you study it and you understand it, 
because you're like, I just want to keep my money safe and get a better interest rate. And so stablecoin is a whole another way where you can place money for savings, but you need to get very comfortable in that world before you before you do it. But it's a, it's a lot of people that are moving their money because there's a, there's a supply and demand shortage. There's not enough people that have stable coins to fulfill the need for people who want to borrow that money. People might say, well, why, why would folks want to borrow stable coin? Well, because once you own Bitcoin, you never want to sell it. Like once you understand that it's a better store of value than anything on the planet at the moment, then you're like, well, cool. Like if I own, if I have a million dollars of Bitcoin and I want to go buy a house, right? Or I want to go, you know, I want to, I want to buy some more Bitcoin. I want to buy whatever, right? You may not want to sell your Bitcoin and go buy something else, but there's companies that will like loan you money against your Bitcoin. They may say, Hey, you got a million of Bitcoin. We'll give you 200 grand. We'll let you borrow, you know, 200 grand and charge you interest. And you're like, cool. Like I'll pay 10% interest because Bitcoin's growing at 200% a year. I'll pay the 10%. Give me 200 grand. I'll take 200 grand, go put down payment on the home, right? And they take and they take the 10%, you know, pay you as the customer for depositing the, you know, the stable coin, right? Cuz they they'll they'll take the 200 grand, they'll give it to them in 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 like dollars, right? But since they can convert stable coins to dollars back and forth, right? The people that have stable coins are actually earning interest, right? And, and I don't want to get too technical, but the point is people are borrowing money against their crypto assets because they don't want to sell that to put their money in some inferior asset class, you know they want to they want to um, just borrow stable coins to do it. And and regular a lot of regular banks are not lending against Bitcoin or that yet. But the crypto banks that deal in stable coins are willing to lend them stable coins against their Bitcoin, which they can convert into dollars later. Right. So that's the best place uh, or another option for savings accounts you know, for those who want to earn some interest, right? Or you can just keep it in the stuff that's not earning nothing and just think of it as insurance. I don't think, you know, I don't think one is right or wrong. I still at the moment keep money in savings account. I just keep a lot less than what I normally do, right? And I have money that I don't need that I sweep into into Bitcoin. And and that is my, my long-term savings account, my long-term piggy bank. Next question. What's the best method for eliminating debt? This is another great question. So the debt snowball method, I think is the best. Dave Ramsey, he wrote some. He wrote lots of stuff on it. Not to beat a dead horse, but it's where you list out all of your bills, all of your debts, in order of smallest to largest, and you say, okay, what's the what's the minimum payment for each? And then you then you take the extra money you have towards paying off debt that, that comes from your budget, and then you apply all that extra money towards the the smallest debt first, and then once that's paid off. You take that money plus the money you were paying towards the minimum, move it to the next one, move it to the next one, and then you snowball the debt over time. But that's that's the best method. I, I haven't seen another method that's better than, than the debt snowball method yet. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Next question. Philip, what insurance policies do I need? I mean, I'm just going to do basic ones because there's lots of insurance for lots of different things. But we're going to do just basic insurance coverages. So let's go property and casualty first. right? You You got to have car insurance. Right. Even if you don't have a loan on your car, like you want to have, you know, minimum coverage on your car, which isn't comp, which may not include comp and collision, but you want to have like the basic coverage on your for your car insurance just in case something happens. Right. You need to have money to pay for your, you know, for your health, the driver's health, right. Liabilities that might come up. So have have minimum coverage, at least if you do have a loan, you're going to require it to have full coverage, but have car insurance. Homeowners insurance is a must. If you rent, I definitely would get renter's insurance for that. So that so and that's that's basic property and casualty, homeowners, car. And when you're looking for insurance, you would you would not go to the cheapest. Well, I would I would hope that you wouldn't go to the cheapest attorney to get some legal work done because you get what you pay for. And so when I'm buying insurance, I don't want the cheapest because the cheapest right is 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 cheap for a reason probably because they don't pay claims. Right, insurance companies make money one or two ways. They don't pay claims. And they get lots of sales. And so my deal is, I don't want, you know, I don't want the cheapest. I want, I want to say, okay, in order of importance, who's most reliable on paying claims, right? That's first. And then once I'm, once I'm, once I find that, I go find one that has a, a good pricing with a good claims paying history. Because if I'm going to pay it, I'm willing to pay a little bit more 
because I know they're going to pay my claims. That's what I would do on the property and casualty side. And there's all kinds of programs that you can do to get a discount, right? So if you, if you, if you go with a, maybe a more expensive auto insurance company, well, if you, there, a lot of them are saying, hey, well, if you, track your, if you let us track your mileage when you drive, we'll give you a discount for being a safe driver, right? Uh, home, if you have an alarm system and different things, they'll give you a discount on that. So as technology gets better, insurance companies will become better underwriting, and they can write your individual risk better than blanketing you into a bucket of people you know, based on your credit history and all that kind of stuff. So that's property and casualty. For health insurance, I need to have health insurance. That's very important to have, whether it's very skinny coverage with a high deductible or something more comprehensive, but definitely get some health insurance because yeah, that's expensive. Like, and, it, and by the way, I think health insurance is, is, should be able to get more cheap. I don't understand why it's so expensive. But that you know, that's a whole episode that I couldn't even talk on because I don't know. But like, get you some, even if it's a you know skinny down policy. Disability insurance. This is one that's very overlooked. Like, if you become disabled and you can't work, you need to have a paycheck come in. So a lot of companies, if you work for a big company, might offer you some short and long term disability. But I haven't seen many, if any cover your full salary. So first, figure out what you get through your employer. And maybe this might be 50% of your salary, 60% of your salary. And then you can go buy more coverage to get you a higher amount in, in case you're disabled. But a lot of folks don't have any and don't know. And so you need to go directly to a company, disability company to go buy coverage. Now, with disability, it's a tough underwriting process. I would stick with companies that are owned by the policy owner. Those are called mutual companies um, because... When you're dealing with insurance, right, they got to wear two hats if they have stock owners. They have to act in the best interest of their stock owners as a fiduciary and their policy owners, which you can't serve two masters, in, in, in my opinion. If it's a policy owner-owned company, right, if they don't pay the money out in claims, they're going to pay it out in dividends to policy owners because they don't have any stock owners. And so there's less of an incentive to not pay claims because it's going out after expenses um, anyway. And so I like to use uh, mutually own companies, which are policy owner own companies, or, or mutual insurance companies, which are policy owned companies. So that's disability insurance. Uh, life insurance is something that a lot of people know they need. It's, it's very important. You know, vast majority of people only need term insurance. Uh, that's like insurance coverage that only pays if you die. Permanent insurance, and there's different kinds of permanent insurance, that pays when you die. It's more expensive. So think of term like renting a home, permanent like owning a home. You could pay it off, keep it forever. It's more expensive. If you're going to buy a permanent, right, you need to make sure that you don't have any debt. Like, you, you have quite a bit of money because they're more expensive. You're on track with your goals. And then go find a company that is, again, mutually owned because those policies grow their cash and death benefit based on how well the company manages expenses and then the money they make on the investments that they invest your money in. And, um, again, if they have shareholders, they have to share some of that profit with the shareholders and they pay the policy owners whatever's left or whatever, vice versa, whoever they prioritize. But if it's owned by the policy owners, you you, you get all you get you get the profits as a policy owner and as an owner of the company. But that's the different types of types of insurance that you should have at a basic level. There's maybe an umbrella policy might not be a bad idea, which covers extra things, extra liability that one of your policies might miss. I call it like gap coverage. Like if, if one of your property and casualty coverages misses something, you might have a million dollar umbrella policy that, that can pay out if it, if if your other insurance policies don't pay out. Think of it like a uh, a reserve fund, you know, a reserve liability fund that you can buy. Next question. How much life insurance should I buy? I have software that literally models out income now, expenses now, your assets now, and it models out as your assets grow, your insurance need reducing, right? So it can do your insurance need, you know, every five years and kind of show you when you should be reducing your insurance amounts. That's for clients that I'm doing financial planning for. But if you don't have that, right, a good rule of, a good rule of thumb is 20 times your income. And where does that come from? So let's, you know, let's do some math. Let's say, let's say you make 50 grand a year. So 20 times your income is a million dollars. 
So if, if something were to happen to you and your spouse brought a wealth manager a million dollars and said, hey, I need to replace my other spouse's income, well, let's assume you can earn uh, 5% of them. Let's assume you can earn 7% of the money. Then you say, okay, cool. I can I can generate 70 grand a year on average from this pile of money. But if you spend all the 70, then your money won't keep pace with the cost of living. And so maybe you say, all right, we're going to send 50,000 a year to replace the paycheck of of the you know deceased spouse, which is you know five percent, and then you invest, and then you invest the other two percent or twenty grand a year to keep to make the money grow and keep pace with the cost of living. And so, if you look at you know a million dollars, that's fifty grand, or you, you back into it, fifty times twenty is a million. So you can get back to that five percent withdrawal rate number by just multiplying it by twenty. It's a quick math trick that allows you to just do the math real quick. Right, so if you make a hundred, it's two million, right? Because if you want to do five percent of two million, it's hundred grand a year. Simple, simple math. That's how I would do it. Next question, Philip. How much do I need to save for retirement? Actually, retirement is the same as the life insurance number. Twenty times, twenty times the income that you want to have in retirement, uh, which which is typically going to be the income that you have right now. Because most people want to, at the very least, maintain their lifestyle. Some want to do better, but at the very least, you want to maintain your lifestyle. A lot of people have the perception of saying, "Oh, when I retire, you know, I'm going to live on a whole lot less." I mean, you can live on a whole lot less, but will you want to? No. And they'll say, "Well, but my homes are going to be paid off and everything." Yeah, but okay, you don't have a job anymore, so you can travel more. Right. <laughs> you know, so that mortgage will be, you know, spent on two trips that you want to spend. Right. And you're probably going to want to do more than two trips. And so building a financial plan and planning for the future is difficult. Only something like one percent of people actually like plan for the future. And so if you can and it's hard because you got to do it and update it. So if you're going to do it, why would you plan for a lifestyle that you that you can tolerate? Right. Why, why would you want to plan for something I can get away with versus like planning for what you want. Like, you know what I mean? Like plan for what you want. If if you get there and for whatever reason you don't save enough or don't have enough, okay, then you maybe you can live on less. But if you're actually building a plan, don't like don't plan for medi for below mediocrity, right? You know, plan for what you want. So it's gonna be very similar to the life insurance number. Because by the way, nobody needs life insurance. I mean, you know, if something happens to you, like they can maybe sell the house live somewhere smaller, go to a worse school district, uh, get less toys. Maybe your spouse can marry somebody for money and be miserable, but they can stay in that location. I mean, you don't need to do anything, but having more money gives you options, a lot more options. And if you think that your spouse won't remarry for money, you're crazy, right? Here's one of the things that I think people, you know, people think, oh, you marry for love. I'm like, nah, like if you really, you know, especially if you're like, people are attracted to people that think similar or have similar aspirations as they do, or not all, it works because of that, right? If, if you marry somebody that has low ambition, that's not going to work, you know, for long. And so, and so you married the person that you married because you both agreed you wanted a certain lifestyle that you're building together. And so you're going to have to find somebody with that same ambition to, you know, to marry, which which might be harder or because you have bills, you may not be as patient for finding the person. And so you may be susceptible to selling for somebody who can keep you in the house. Like, and that's just real people. Some people judge that that's just real. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm back on life insurance, but the point is like, don't settle. Next question. What are the best retirement vehicles and strategies? Easy answer. There is no best. It all depends on your facts and circumstances and what you're trying to do. I can parlay into if it's specifically for retirement and you don't mind locking it up until 59 and a half and you're saying, what's my favorite vehicle for doing that? Mine is anything with a Roth in front of it, a Roth 401k, a Roth IRA. That is my favorite account. Why? Because I can pay taxes now and don't have to pay taxes again. Not on my growth, not on the money I take out. You don't get a tax deduction today, but I'm fine with that because I'm working today. I'm going to pay the tax now, but when I don't want to work in, or I can't work in the future, you know, and if I have three million in my IRA, right, I want all three million to be mine versus like mine is, you know, mine minus Uncle Sam's cut when I, as I take money out. And that's one of the big misconceptions that people have is a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to have three million in my traditional IRA when I retire. All that is mine. No, you haven't paid taxes on any of it. 
So as you take money out, you're going to have to pay taxes at whatever rate taxes are in the future, which we don't know. Some people say, well, it's probably going to be lower because I'm making less money. Who knows, right? Probably, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But I like to, I like to handicap. I don't like open-ended risk, you know? I like to have a known and certain outcome, especially when I'm planning for a time period where I may, may slow down what I'm working. Because right now, I can, do whatever, I can pay the tax. And if I need to make some more money, I can go Uber drive or something. I don't know. But at 70 or 80, when I run low on money, I'm not driving an Uber at 80. You know, that's, you know, that's, if they still, heck, when I'm 80, they're not going to, the cars are going to drive themselves. Heck, when I'm 50, they're going to be driving themselves. So I like to have, I like Roths, as much money as you can get where you pay the tax now and not deal with it later is, is my preference from, as a retirement vehicle. Uh, let's, let's go for the last question. Philip, can I get a tax deduction when selling my business? Oh yeah, this is a great one. A very underutilized planning strategy for people who are charitable. And if you're a business owner and you've built a pretty successful business, that means by nature you're a giver. I have found very few business owners that were not giving people, give, meaning you're serving the marketplace by providing a valuable service and, and you're giving them more value than what you're charging or you wouldn't have a successful business. And a lot of those same people are given to different charities, churches, organizations they care about. So a lot of people are givers. And so there's a strategy where if if you're a giver and you want to continue to give, it's complex and you're going to need advisors who understand it, CPAs, maybe tax attorneys, estate planning attorneys, somebody who specializes in doing it with along with your wealth manager. But you're able to use what's called a charitable remainder trust strategy where basically Here's the here's the simple version, because I don't want to get caught up in zebra and hippo. I just want to help you spot zebras and hippos, but I don't want to get caught up in the weeds. What I'm trying to say, but let's 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 say you got a business, you know, that's that's worth, that you're going to sell for five million dollars. You're able to convert your shares of the business to, to different units, and then you can gift some of those units to the charitable remainder trust. So let's say you give the the, the charitable remainder trust. $4 million worth of shares, right? When you create that, when you give that money away, that creates an automatic tax deduction, right? And tax deduction depends on like how long you have the payout because you're going you're gonna to create an income stream from the trust. So how long that income stream is, how much you're drawing from it. And I won't go into that, but you'll create some sort of immediate tax deduction that can be significant when you do that transfer. And then what happens is when you sell the business, the four million that's in there, you don't pay capital gains on that because you don't know you don't own it. You gave it to the trust, so all four million is still in the trust. You're going to pay it on the million that you kept, right? But you got a tax deduction, which is going to help reduce that tax burden on the million, right? And you kept more of the business out of Uncle Sam's hand, so you got four million over here that's not taxable, and then you can draw income off the trust for a period of time, right? And, and there's like life certainty. I won't go into that, but but the point is, you know, you're, you're 4 million. Now we can create a retirement plan where we say, okay, we're going to be able to draw, you know, 300 grand a year from the trust for this period of time. And, and when we design it, basically we, we the, the rules are you have to design it where you're going to leave some money to a charity. You don't have to give, you don't have to give the charity the money while you're alive. You can live off the income from the trust while you're alive and still control the investments. Uh, in the trust, which is which is cool, but then at your death, you leave, ex, you know, you leave some amount of money that's required by the law. You got to build it right, just like four hundred one k's. You got to build those right. You got to build this right, but you leave that amount of money to your charity, which you were going to do anyway. And so it's just being strategic and planning it out in advance. And the math is crazy. Like when you design this, if somebody's charitable and they're going to leave money anyway, like the tax savings is is, is amazing. You basically create an income stream for yourself cut out Uncle Sam from a big chunk of taxes and then you give it to a charity you care about. And a lot of times it's, it's not a one for one trade, meaning you don't you don't give dollar for dollar what you would have given to the IRS, to the charity. A lot of times you, you, you might give them both less or you have the option to give them the charity more, right? The point is, it's up to you and you get to design and plan it. But a charitable remainder trust is a, is a great way to sell a business, create income and get a tax breaks 
multiple tax breaks. Oh, because by the way, while the money is growing in the trust, as your investments are growing in the trust, because you can invest the $4 million in the trust, it's also growing without paying taxes on the investments, right? So it's like, it's like a super 401k, <laughs> you know? So you got those tax benefits as well that increases your income if you're doing it on a percentage basis. But I don't want to go too nerd. The point is, this is a great vehicle for charitable business owners looking to sell their business and create an income stream. That's the last question. I hope this was helpful for y'all. Y'all enjoy your weekend and yeah, have fun. One of the biggest planning challenges I see for individuals that work at publicly traded companies are planning around their stock base or equity based compensation. They get stock options, restricted stock, employee stock purchase plans that can majorly affect uh, their tax situation and their balance sheet over time and the decision-making process around what you do with your stock-based compensation can significantly impact your net worth in a positive or, or even a negative way, way over the long term. And so what I offer to potential new clients is to review your stock-based compensation plan and give my opinion on what you should do, what you should think about, how to put together a strategy around that. It's something that I do on an ongoing basis with existing clients, but I'll offer a no-cost no obligation, one-time consultation on your stock-based compensation plan for anybody who's interested to sign up for a time. Go to my website, stonehillwealthmanagement.com and book a free investment, no cost, no obligation review. Stonehillwealthmanagement.com. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.